Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic adult and child psychiatrist. In this podcast, I'll be talking about toxicity and what is called oxidative stress. And basically, this occurs when there is an imbalance between free radicals and our body's antioxidant system. So I'll start with what I mean by toxins, how they get in, where they go, and what they can do. I'll comment on the impacts of environmental toxins on the developing brain and their role in depression, ADHD, autism, anxiety, and neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's. And I'll talk about why some of us are more vulnerable to toxicity and thus more vulnerable to oxidative stress and then more vulnerable to particular health conditions, including psychiatric conditions. And I'll end with some basic strategies of how we can start to lower our exposures and how we can improve detoxification. Let's start with a basic understanding that we all have a degree of toxins in our body. And by toxins or toxicants, I'm referring to toxins we get from outside of our bodies, such as chemical toxins and heavy metals, and toxins that are made by particular microbes that are living in our body, primarily in our gastrointestinal tract, our microbiome. I won't be talking about mold toxins specifically, and I have in a previous podcast. Their journey through the body is different, and the way we approach it is different. So in this podcast, I'm focusing on chemical toxins and heavy metal toxins. So our exposure to toxins begins before we're born. Many toxins cross the placenta and can be measured in umbilical cord blood. Some of the common toxins found are pesticides, PFCs or perfluorinated chemicals that are basically in coatings of certain products, mercury, chemicals from flame retardants, industrial lubricants, plastics, consumer product ingredients and waste from burning coal, gasoline, and garbage. Some toxins, such as PCBs, which is polychlorinated biphenyls, were once used in many products. Nonetheless, they're still concentrated in breast milk, leaving infants with higher concentrations than their mother. So despite this particular chemical being banned in the 70s, they're found in 100% of children. Add to these accumulations what children as toddlers could be exposed to. This could be things such as lead, if they're crawling around in an older home with deteriorated paint or a recent renovation. When that's happening, the child is basically putting their hands in their mouth and they're ingesting the lead. If they're playing on lawns that have been sprayed with pesticides, they're acquiring organophosphates, If they're climbing on playground equipment, treated wood, then arsenic would be an exposure. And if they're playing outside in a farming community, they're likely inhaling herbicides and pesticides that have been sprayed on nearby crops. So obviously our exposure continues as we acquire more as adults, not only from what we breathe and what we eat, 
but also from the products that we put on our skin. So I'll be talking about that. It is estimated that there are nearly 80,000 chemicals on the market in the United States. And though many of these are in consumer products, less than 1% have been rigorously tested for human safety. This is not the case in Europe. In the category of cosmetics alone, the European Union has prohibited or restricted 1,300 ingredients. The U.S. has banned 11. Similarly, there are food additives used in our country that are prohibited in the EU. Some American companies have worked around this. For example, if you're eating Skittles or M&Ms in Europe, the colorful coating contains natural ingredients like turmeric. If you're eating them here in the U.S., however, you're ingesting yellow dye numbers 5 and 6, which have been linked to allergic reactions as well as hyperactivity in children. So as I mentioned, not all toxins come from the outside. We also have toxins produced by problematic microbes in the gastrointestinal tract. The gut microbiome consists of 100 trillion or more microbes that support our digestion and our immune system. If we've been on antibiotics, been under high stress, or been eating a primarily Western diet high in sugar, carbohydrates, and processed foods, then our microbiome could become imbalanced and we can have less diversity and fewer beneficial microbes. And with that, problematic microbes such as candida and certain bacteria can multiply. And they will be making their own toxins that then get added to the mix and can overwhelm our body's protective mechanisms. Add to that mix mold toxins, which are from water-damaged spaces, which is very common in buildings, homes, schools, and so forth. There are other biotoxins besides mold toxins, such as those made by Lyme, Bartonella, or other Lyme co-infections. So I hope you're starting to see that we have multiple sources of toxicity. However, with this comes multiple opportunities for us to lessen this toxic burden and to support our body's ability to detoxify. We do have limits, however, of what our bodies can tolerate and what our bodies can do. So when our detoxification systems are overwhelmed, the very organs that help us detoxify, namely the gastrointestinal tract, the liver, and the kidney, they can be damaged in such a way that they're not able to do their jobs well. And then we can become more toxic, have more oxidative stress, and then more illness, including psychiatric illness. So we have an understanding of toxins generally, and I'd like to comment again on oxidative stress. So this occurs again when there are more free radicals than our antioxidant system can manage. A free radical is an unstable atom or molecule that damages cells resulting in illness. The brain is a really good barometer of oxidative stress. So if we're dealing with brain-related symptoms, it's really important to both consider our exposures and lower our toxicity and support our organs of detoxification. Now, this issue of oxidative stress can have its impacts from the very beginning and impact the developing brain. So when I talked about how much we're exposed to even in utero before we're even born, 
Um, this is where oxidative stress can be causing damages to the brain that can result in particular conditions such as autism. And remember, no matter what we're exposed to, we're given only one chance for brain development. And 80% of this growth occurs in our first three years. So neurotoxins such as lead, mercury, organophosphate, pesticides interfere with brain development and are found in almost all children in this country, as are flame retardants and hormone disruptors and, again, PCBs. Aside from the impact of oxidative stress on the developing brain, it can also contribute to inflammation, which is basically an exaggerated immune response that appears to play a role in most brain-related conditions, including ADHD, depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's, and others. So chronic oxidative stress, so that means when it's happening regularly and over time, leads to chronic inflammation, and eventually that leads to loss of brain cells and what we call neurodegeneration. Dementia doesn't begin with the onset of symptoms, but is rather years in the making. This doesn't mean, however, that it can't be halted or that it can't be reversed to some degree. So to make this kind of experiential, let's pretend we're a toxin and we'll take a journey into the body and I'll talk about how we then move through the body and what happens to us. So first, how do toxins get into the body? And primarily through the skin, the lungs, and the gastrointestinal tract. So just to start with the skin, don't underestimate how much gets through our skin. And this is a big issue when it comes to body and skincare products. If you think about how much we use through our daily routine, and much more so for women, I would say, than men, there is the potential to get a very significant toxic hit on a regular basis through what is generally considered a protective barrier. Skin allows plenty through, which is why some medications, some hormones, and even supplements are given transdermally, meaning through the skin. Now, if you're an airborne toxin, you can get inhaled into the lungs, and while there, you can make your way into the bloodstream through what is called the air-blood barrier. Within our lungs, there's a massive amount of very tiny blood vessels that are basically taking in what's being inhaled, including oxygen, but also toxins if present. So if you're a toxin and you're ingested and land in the gastrointestinal tract, and there happens to be a healthy microbiome and a healthy gut lining, and you're accompanied, let's say, by a high-fiber diet, then you very well may be swept along and leave the body with all that fiber in the stool. If, however, you land in someone's gastrointestinal tract who eats a highly processed diet and is thus low in fiber, and maybe this person also has some gut permeability, related to um, even toxic damage to their gastrointestinal tract, then you won't have difficulty getting through what is called the gut-blood barrier. So this is where both toxins and particular food particles can make their way 
from the gastrointestinal tract into the blood. And the more toxins that have been there before us, the more we're likely to find a gut lining that's inflamed and what we would call leaky, meaning there's good permeability into the bloodstream. So I just explained how, depending on someone's diet and the health of someone's gastrointestinal lining, how toxins could be basically moved out of the body. So the gastrointestinal tract is one of our detoxification organs. The other two will be the liver and the kidney. If, as a toxin, we've made it through the skin, the lungs, or the gastrointestinal tract, and we're in the blood, then the next place we would go would be into the liver. When the liver is working well, it will actually remove about 99% of toxins from the blood before allowing the blood to re-enter the general circulation. If you're a large toxin, it's likely that the liver will be able to simply remove you. If you're a fat-soluble toxin, meaning that you dissolve in fat, which would be the case with herbicides and pesticides, the liver may be able to turn you into a liquid and then send you off to the kidney or put you into the bile so that the gallbladder can put you out into the gastrointestinal tract. But if you're not excreted by way of the kidney or by way of the gallbladder and the colon, and if you're not excreted through the skin, through sweat, or through the lungs, through exhalation, or even through hair, these are lesser ways the body excretes toxins. They are sources of excretion as well. Then if none of those things happen, then you would be moved on to the liver where you can be neutralized or altered by particular enzymes. Now it's important to note that liver enzymes aren't just dealing with toxins, they're also dealing with normal body chemicals such as hormones, inflammatory mediators such as histamine and prostaglandins, and to the mix, even medications um, need to be broken down by the liver. So this is important for those who struggle with things like estrogen dominance, histamine intolerance, problematic reactions to medications and or high reactivity to chemicals. This can relate to particular weak enzymes in the liver, but they can also suggest that the liver is simply dealing with much more than it can manage. So I'm going to try to simplify the two phases of detoxification in the liver. The first is called the cytochrome P450 system, and this involves about 50 to 100 enzymes, each focusing on certain types of chemicals, and there is some overlap and each of these enzymes is basically produced through the genetic expression of a particular gene. And these genes can have variations. So we can have what are called polymorphisms, meaning the gene might be resulting in an enzyme that works slow or that works fast. This can impact our vulnerability to have particular medication reactions even impacting, for example, how well we tolerate something like caffeine. There are certain foods and medications that can inhibit certain enzymes and then others that can promote the enzyme's functioning. 
So if you multiply that by the 50 to 100 enzymes, things can get pretty complicated. And so if you're a toxin and you've not been dealt with or broken down in this first phase of detoxification, then you'll need to be converted into what is called an active intermediate. And this active intermediate allows you to be bumped on to the second phase of liver detoxification. And as an active intermediate, you've just become more toxic than you were before. And so this is one of the ironic things about the liver is in an attempt to help us detoxify, there is actually this stage with which a toxin becomes even more toxic. And if that weren't bad enough, each time a toxin is turned into an active intermediate, a free radical is generated. And a free radical is what damages cells, including cells of the liver. And so none of this is so problematic if we have adequate glutathione. So glutathione is the most important antioxidant for neutralizing these free radicals. And normally glutathione is recycled. So as long as things are in balance, glutathione is taking care of this process. However, if there's excessive toxins, the glutathione can be depleted, leaving an excess of free radicals that can damage cells and tissues including, as I said, those of the liver. And so then the very organ with which we need to detoxify can no longer function well for us. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on phase two other than to say, as an active intermediate, you're then faced with a number of chemical reactions that add small chemicals to you that allow you to be neutralized. So terms that are less important, things like conjugation, sulfation, acetylation, glucuronidation. Those are less important to know, but I would say one of those, and you've heard me talk about it if you've heard my previous podcast, is methylation. So this is the area where methylation aligns with detoxification. So if we're under-methylated, we can have a weakness in this particular part of the detoxification pathway. For those who aren't familiar with methylation, it also affects our ability to have adequate serotonin activity, dopamine activity, so it can convey a number of brain-related symptoms, and it's also needed to break down histamine. The ideal is when both phases of liver detoxification are coordinated and there's no buildup of these free radicals which can damage cells and eventually lead to illness, rapid aging, and brain-related symptoms. Factors beyond genetics that can get in the way of either phase working well can include specific nutrient deficiencies, inadequate protein, um, again, toxic overload, certain medications, lack of exercise, and even low thyroid hormone can specifically impair phase two. If by phase two you're now a water-soluble toxin, then you're headed to the kidney along with other natural waste products. And as with the GI tract and the liver, the kidneys have their limits. If they have too much to deal with or too much toxic exposure, they will slow down. 
that they are able to take toxins out of the blood doesn't mean that they can get those toxins all into the urine. Cadmium, for example, and a number of chemical toxins will stay in the kidney and cause damage. So as you can see, again, the toxins can damage the very organs, thereby making us even more vulnerable. This is why in addition to understanding how to minimize our exposure, it's also really important to know how to support the organs of detoxification. So how exactly do toxins cause damage? How do they make us age faster than we should? How do they cause chronic illness, cancer, or psychiatric conditions? So first keep in mind that our cells, the very building blocks of our body, this is where it's at. If our cells aren't working well, then our organs, which the cells make up, won't be working well, and then we're not working well. There's a lot going on inside cells that toxins can interfere with. They can damage our DNA. They can modify gene expression, so alter the expression of genes in problematic ways, thus causing illness, including cancer. They can damage our mitochondria, which is what makes energy for the cell. And if you've had problems with low energy and fatigue or mental fatigue or poor muscle tone, this could be related to your mitochondria. Toxins and all these impacts are by way of that oxidative stress that I mentioned. They can also damage enzymes. Enzymes are what make things happen, not only for detoxification, as I talked about in the liver, but also for breaking things down like food particles. You know, when we talk about digestive enzymes, they're important for building things up like muscle. They're important for speeding up chemical reactions and are basically involved in almost every physiologic process in the body. Toxins can also deplete us in antioxidants. So antioxidants are there to protect us from these free radicals. And if we've been overwhelmed with toxicity and the antioxidants have become depleted, then that leaves us even more vulnerable. Toxins can also disrupt the methylation cycle. In addition to interfering with the processes going on in the cell, toxins can impact the outside of the cell so they can inhibit, mimic, block, or induce hormone receptors. So I won't be going into much detail here, but know that this is why we will see type 2 diabetes, weight gain, obesity, and metabolic syndrome in relation to someone having toxic overload. And when you hear the term uh, toxin being described as an endocrine disruptor, that is referring to this interaction of the toxin with an endocrine or hormonal receptor site, causing an increase or decrease in that hormone-mediated cell activity. So this might come up, for example, with children going through early or precocious puberty because of toxic exposure, and collectively there's concern that as children are getting more toxic exposure, they're having these hormonal effects that are inducing hormonal changes earlier than would be occurring otherwise. Toxins cause inflammation. So toxicity and inflammation go hand in hand and really are at the root of most chronic illnesses, including psychiatric. 
Inflammation is basically when the body mounts an immune response. So if we have an infection or injury, this is a good thing. But when we don't and we're having an immune response because our body is recognizing a lot of toxins that shouldn't be there, then there can be a great deal of damage. And where that damage occurs could be the thyroid, it could be the joints, as in the case of arthritis, the arteries, as in the case of vascular disease, in nerve cells, as in the case of degenerative diseases like dementia, Parkinson's, ALS, but also in the case of psychiatric conditions such as depression. And the gastrointestinal tract can also be impacted by toxins, thus leading to greater gut permeability. Greater gut permeability can contribute to inflammation by way of food particles making their way into the bloodstream, and toxins can impact the very nutrients that we need for brain health. So zinc, for example, if we're dealing with a high level of toxicity, we can become depleted in zinc, and zinc is a very important antioxidant. It's very important for decreasing inflammation. It plays a big role in the GI tract, the immune system, and also the brain. If we're dealing with toxicity and thus oxidative stress, pyrroles can go up. I have a podcast where I talk about pyrroles. When pyrroles go up, zinc can go down further, as can B6, and then we can have the brain-related symptoms due to those. We can also have, with depletion in zinc, elevations in copper, and high copper can certainly cause brain-related symptoms. So when I'm meeting with individuals and I'm testing for things like high pyrroles and I'm checking copper and zinc levels, if there's a copper-zinc imbalance, that would be considered a marker for oxidative stress. If there's high pyrroles, that's considered a marker for oxidative stress. And these are conditions that are impacting many, if not most, people with brain-related symptoms. And again, almost all the protocols that I use, and this is through my training with the Walsh Research Institute, involve um, antioxidants as well as targeted nutrients depending on what their labs show. So before I give some suggestions on limiting toxic exposure, I want to just mention that toxins can also be stored And though many toxins will move out of our body quickly, certain toxins can lay low only to cause problems later in our life. Where they're stored depends on the toxin. So mercury, for example, accumulates in the kidney, liver, and in neurologic tissue, such as in the brain. Lead, however, will store in our bones, and it will displace minerals such as calcium, resulting in weaker bone structure, and has been linked to osteoporosis. So this is especially relevant for those born in the 60s, 70s, and 80s who could have had more exposure. And what then can happen is as we get older and we have um, more breakdown of our bone, there can be an increase in the release of that lead causing an internal exposure. And this uh, lead has been considered a risk factor for developing late-onset Alzheimer's. P. 
POPs or what are called persistent organic pollutants, or they're also called forever chemicals, they store in fat cells. And they can become mobilized along with other toxins if we lose weight, potentially making us feel worse and interfering with our motivation to lose weight. As I mentioned, toxicity is part of what can cause weight gain in the first place. And so this is why lifestyle changes, including limiting exposure to toxins and supporting the microbiome and organs of detoxification, can be much more seamless and effective and lasting than trying to do superficial dieting that often will just make people feel worse and not go through a healing process. So obviously this talk leads to a number of different branching off talks that I look forward to to doing in the future. And I really wanted to introduce this topic to make clear that toxicity is very important when someone has brain-related symptoms. So I'm going to give some general suggestions and considerations, but I will be coming back to this topic. If we just start with the skin, I think we can all do an inventory of what products we're putting on our body every day and really making a list of those. And you can go to the Environmental Working Group website, and they have a tab called Skin Deep, and they will rate products, and that will tell you how much your exposure is. And just this increased awareness will inevitably shift most people to start to limit the use of these products, but also to start to replace these products. And it's not something that I would recommend someone try to do all at once, but to just calmly and matter-of-factly learn about what, you know, what is being put on the body and then devising a plan to start to um, make those changes in a fashion that's, that's orderly, you know, starting with the biggest culprit and working from there. The Environmental Working Group also has good information on household products, which can be contributing to toxicity both through inhalation and through skin contact. We can also be mindful of air purification and particular environmental exposures such as mold toxins and even pesticides and herbicides if we live in a rural community. The Environmental Working Group has nice information on pesticides in produce, the Dirty Dozen, and the other, the Clean 13. So you can see which conventional foods are higher in pesticides and which are lower in pesticides. And so this, the ones that are higher, it would be more important to consider organic than the ones that are especially low. We can also consider filtering our water, we can also consider the food storage products in our home, how much are items exposed to plastic that we are ingesting. We can look at our furniture, and as we make choices, consider things like flame retardants and how that exposure could be impacting us. Again, the Environmental Working Group is a great site that has specific summaries on each of these areas that I'm mentioning. 
you can try to go after all this at once, which I think is very stress-inducing and stress itself impacts our ability to detoxify. If you can be accepting that we all have a degree of toxicity and what we can do is to lower our overall toxic load. There's no perfection here. I encourage people to do the best that they can and especially individuals who are dealing with psychiatric conditions, cancer, cardiovascular disease, autoimmune conditions, or any chronic health conditions, these issues become more important. I also will look forward to doing a talk where I discuss in more detail how to support organs of detoxification, but just some general principles would be to first lower our exposure so we're not overwhelming our detoxification organs, working towards a diet that is low in sugar and carbs, that is low in the additives and preservatives, so a relatively whole food type of diet, and a diet that is not highly processed and one that is high in fiber. So all of that will help our gastrointestinal tract more easily move toxins out and not acquire more toxins. As far as the liver, there are certain supplements that will help support various processes going on in the liver, and there's endless information online about this. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach, nor would I say all the supplements that support liver detoxification are tolerated well by everyone. So it's why I'm not going to give strong recommendations here. For example, turmeric is very good for some people. If someone is dealing with mold and or yeast, it can have some antifungal effects and they may not tolerate it particularly well. A lot of support of liver detoxification involves high sulfur foods and supplements, and there are some individuals who, because of their genetic makeup, do not do well with a lot of additional sulfur. More general recommendations would be the basics, good hydration, good exercise, so we're really moving our blood through the liver, and we're sweating, and again, that is a route of elimination of toxins. Having regular bowel movements is also a route of detoxification. So if we're not having a daily bowel movement, then some of those toxins can be reabsorbed into the body. And not being in a state of chronic stress. So when we're in a state of chronic stress, we're not in that rest and digest state. And if we're not in the rest and digest state, then our organs of detoxification won't be working as effectively. There are many other strategies out there from using infrared sauna to using foot baths to brushing, which is basically doing a brush on the skin, to oil pulling. And really, there's many more strategies. As I mentioned, a lot of information online about ways to detoxify And I would only suggest that anyone who is going about detoxification, that they do it gently and carefully, since we all differ in our ability to detoxify, 
if we're going about it too aggressively, it could make us feel pretty sick. It is worth noting that Tylenol and alcohol can deplete us in glutathione, that very important antioxidant. Taking antioxidants can be helpful in helping mop up those free radicals. However, there is debate about taking glutathione on a long-term basis as there is some concern that that could prevent the body from producing its own glutathione. If you'd like to learn more about root causes to brain-related symptoms, please visit my website at CourtneySnyderMD.com. If you know someone you think could benefit from the information on this podcast, please consider sharing. And if you want to help me get this information about the root causes of brain-related symptoms out into the world, then consider liking, sharing, commenting, and or following me on social media sites. I'm currently on Facebook, Instagram, and on YouTube. So I'll look forward to connecting with you in a future podcast or on one of those sites where I do share other information. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.